0: Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed
1: therapist. And I'm Humberto Castaneda, and I'm a professional
0: hiker. Today, I thought I would present a study I conducted. What do you say, Berto? That sounds very intriguing. Well, the study's title is Seasoned Psychotherapist's Experience of Difficult Clinical Moments. Whoa, 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 hold on. Say that again (laughs) It's a long It's a long title Seasoned Seasoned As in experience Not like cumin Oh okay (laughs) So seasoned psychotherapists
1: Seasoned psychotherapists
0: Experience Mm -hmm. Of difficult clinical moments
1: Oh I get it now Okay seasoned psychotherapists Not psychopaths Psychopaths Experiences While cooking with cumin Exactly Now, Now I have a question So you said you conducted This means what? Like you conducted an orchestra, you interviewed people. What does it mean?
0: It means that I carried out the study. I designed it. I decided upon the topic. I did the literature review. I interviewed the participants. I analyzed. I did the whole thing. okay. Got it. So picture this, Berto. A client harshly berates a therapist for being ineffective and incompetent. Whoa. So we have a, a client yelling at... His or her therapist saying, you're a terrible therapist.
1: Like, I've not gotten any better. This is not working. You suck. It's all your fault.
0: And the, and the therapist takes it to heart. Mm. Picture another situation. A client walks into session, and the therapist notices he has a gun.
1: <gasps> oh, God.
0: Another situation. A counselor is horrified by a child's account of being abused, tortured even. Whoa. The therapist has to listen to detailed accounts of a child's torture and the counselor is, is horrified by that. Ugh. These are stories or examples of difficult clinical moments, potentially difficult clinical moments. Throughout my work as a professor and a therapist, talking with other therapists, training therapists, supervising therapists, I have heard a number of stories like these, but, but not a lot, honestly, But but, but some. Mm-hmm. Yet there is not much in the literature regarding difficult moments like these. Like how
1: to handle that and...
0: or even what they are, right? right. How to handle, yeah. And, and you don't
1: uh, take a class for it or something.
0: And I've never seen a class offered okay. or a tr- or a training. Hmm. I've never seen a training that says how to deal with a situation like this, you know. Wow. It's there's there's trainings on all sorts of things, but I've never seen a training on this. So this sparked my interest. Right. And I thought, hmm. I wonder what is in the literature. So I decided to look into it. Because sometimes just because I haven't seen any literature doesn't right. mean there isn't any literature. Right. Uh, one of the things I used to think early in my career was that I, I knew all the topics. I had I'd seen all the topics in psychology. <laughs> and boy, was I wrong. I, I've read a lot to date, and I would imagine I've probably come across .001% of the material in psychology. <laughs> wow. You know, <laughs> there's a lot. So, but before moving forward, before I go over what I found in the literature, I feel like I need to establish a definition of what, what we're talking about when we're talking about difficult clinical right. moments. Well, upon looking at the literature I found an established area of research that looks at quote unquote therapist difficulties. Oh. Yeah. So there's that. However, there's no established definition. Okay. And I could go into the detail on that, but I'm not going to for brevity's sake. Is that what they say? Brevity? For brevity's sake. Is that is that a thing? Is brevity That's a mean thing. to be short? Yeah. To, okay.
1: Now now we're being unbrevious by explaining all the brevity. I'm
0: being on brevity by (laughs) by asking you what brevity's sake means. So after reviewing all the literature on on therapist difficulties and also reviewing some of the literature on each of the peripheral topics like countertransference, I developed the following definition myself because one needed to be established. So this is my definition. A difficult clinical moment is a discrete moment in which the psychotherapist experiences distress as a result of his or her work with a client.
1: Okay, a discreet moment, so not, uh, hey, for the last six months, I've been experiencing a difficult, this happened yesterday at 6 p.m. in my office, and uh, while doing work with a client. Right. Well, the moment of difficulty can occur
0: within a few seconds or several minutes, and it does not necessarily have to occur within a psychotherapy session. I see. So, it can occur outside of
1: session. At least, that was what I was thinking. Oh, because it could be like, they heard the thing in the session- and, and it's like it didn't fully register and then they're walking home or they're laying in bed that night and then, and then they get super depressed or scared or something.
0: Right. I, I imagined when I developed this definition that that could happen or the client sends an email
1: to the right. therapist. E- yeah, ex- right. Extra, extra curricular uh, communication or right.
0: Or the client bumps into the therapist right. in the store or they're consulting and... Oh,
1: that's a really good example, actually. The, you run into a client outside of the context of your therapy and the client is does something or says something that puts you in distress right right like your spouse is ugly
0: right for instance right right right. that'd be a difficult moment so what do i mean by distress well uh, upon reading all the literature or, or a lot of the literature on what constitutes therapist distress i came up with a long list are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Let's I do it. I put I, I made different categories just based on my own sense of how things should be categorized. So the first one is feeling inadequate, demoralized, self doubt, or unconfident. Okay. Another one, feeling confused or out of control of the therapeutic situation.
1: Okay, so it's like for the first one it's like you suck as a therapist, so now I feel like right. the second one's more like, I'm gonna kill myself or something. Uh and confused. The and therapist confused. is confused. Okay. Three,
0: feeling guilty. Overly responsible, remorseful, or injurious of the client. Mm-hmm. Another one, surmising that his or her private concerns, the therapist's private concerns, are intruding into the therapy.
1: Oh. What's an example of that?
0: Like, they are going through a difficult divorce, and they hate all women, and so they're hostile with oh, their... Oh, I see. ...with their women clients. Okay. Another one, feeling intimidated, manipulated, or emotionally hurt by the client. Makes sense, right? hmm Feeling anxious shocked, overwhelmed, or destabilized. Another one, feeling angry, irritated, aggressive, or frustrated. Another one, feeling disgust, nausea, tenseness, unrest, or avoidant of the client. Another, ruminating on the client or feeling unable to let go. Other examples of distress, feeling unable to empathize, feeling distant or unable to form a relationship. And lastly, distress can take the form of experiencing intrusive images, nightmares, or disturbing dreams. Oh. So this is a list based on the literature and, and upon my own experience of the different forms of therapist distress that would be within the definition of a difficult clinical moment. Was,
1: sorry, did I miss? Was one of them physical uh, distress? No. Like what, what if the, the therapist
0: is injured Well, if that is distressing on an emotional level, then that would fit within my definition. That's an interesting question. If the client, for whatever reason, punched the therapist in the face and the therapist didn't experience that as distressing, which would be strange, (laughs) then it wouldn't fit under this definition, interestingly. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, how'd you lose that arm? It's a a session, you know? What, What do you mean? Well, you grab the chainsaw client, chop off my arm. Well, that must have been distressing. No, not at all. (laughs) I'm a professional. I'm a professional. So
0: what did I find in the literature? Well, I I found a few things. One is that difficulties are common, I found, in the research literature. There's a large body of research demonstrating that psychotherapists encounter various difficult moments throughout their career. So that's the first thing I found. The next thing I found was that difficulties are linked to negative effects.
1: So my my initial assumption would be that Uh, The type of people that go to seek therapy might uh, statistically have more unbalanced folks amongst its ranks compared to the number of people that don't go seek therapy. But maybe that's not true because maybe people that go seek therapy actually are trying to get help and the people that are really unbalanced are not trying to get help. And the only reason I'm I'm wondering this is because… I wonder if when you're saying that you encounter a lot of difficulty in the literature, if that's kind of obvious because they're helping people that need help and therefore they probably encounter a lot of unbalanced people.
0: Well, it really depends on what you mean by unbalanced. Can you define dangerous. that? Dangerous people. Yeah. I would say the vast majority of dangerous people don't go to therapy mm. and I don't have any literature before me to prove that. I it's interesting to hear non-therapists like yourself... Have an imagination about the typical client, (laughs) right? I mean, you go to therapy, I have, and you're not dangerous. Well, that you know of. (laughs) I I go to therapy.
1: I'm definitely dangerous. I'm not dangerous.
0: I mean, aside from cutting off that therapist's arm, like you're referring to, I'm not dangerous. And none of my clients are particularly dangerous. I mean, off the top of my head, I can't remember. You're right,
1: though. But when I when I step away from it, if you ask me, like, hey, draw draw a typical client, I might draw some deranged person with an (laughs) ax.
0: Right. I mean, it depends on the clinician. There are some clinicians that work primarily with dangerous people. Right. But the vast majority of therapists, I would say, it's pretty rare that a dangerous person will come in. But, you know, it happens, Mm -hmm. obviously. So anyway, the second thing I found was that difficulties are linked to negative effects. Mm. Things like stress for the therapist. Emotional suffering, burnout, you know, like they right. burn out yeah. of the profession altogether.
1: And maladaptive coping behaviors for the therapist, like alcoholism. Oh, I see. That's what maladaptive. Okay. It, ways to cope with that situation, but like they lead to addiction or they lead to something bad in the... Well, there are coping habit. behaviors like
0: taking a bath, mm-hmm. which is what we might say as healthy or mm-hmm. adaptive. Or go for a run or something. Right. And maladaptive things like drug abuse, alcohol, or suicide. Mm-hmm. So, difficulties are linked to those things in therapists. And all of this means that you have a compromised therapist, right? They're stressed, they're burning right. out, they, they're, they're suffering emotionally, they're drinking more, they're drugging more, they're getting depressed. Well, this obviously will lead to compromised treatment of clients, right? Right.
1: So... Which probably leads to more stressful situations, yeah. more distressing situations. Right.
0: So, another thing I found was that even though they're common and they're linked to negative effects therapists are not trained sufficiently. Mm. For instance, in one study, they found that therapists rate their training regarding difficulties as non-existent or poor. Whoa. Which I would say I'm in the non-existent category. I, you I never took
1: a class on this. <laughs> I've never even
0: been offered a class on it. And, and I'm pretty sure prior to doing this, you know, getting interested in this topic, I probably would have gone. I mean, if you had a training titled like how to deal with difficult clinical moments, I, I'm just guessing a lot of people would go. Yeah. But anyway, so it just they're just not offered, which is strange. Another thing I found in the literature was that therapists are only vaguely aware of difficulties. Oh. So that's
1: that's perhaps as a result of not being trained. That could be. Or maybe, the, yeah, because maybe they expect, you know, hey, that's therapy. You know, it can get messy. Maybe, maybe that's kind of the, the self-expectation about it is that, Yeah. Well, of course I'm going to, hey, man, that's what I signed up for. Um, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one possibility. But uh, in my experience, people
0: do not expect difficulties to happen. I see. I think that's what, that's the, lack of a, that's what the lack of training and awareness hmm. leads to is that therapists are caught completely off guard. And the last thing I found in the literature that pertains to this little discussion here is that therapists are reluctant to seek help for difficulties. One study found that therapists don't seek help for fear of damage to their reputation.
1: Oh, you can't handle a little difficult client.
0: Yeah. Or, mm. <laughs> what did you do that created that situation right. to begin with? It
1: must have been your fault,
0: right? And there's an and there's another body of research that points to shame as a reason why therapists don't reach out.
1: I wonder if that one is uh, extends to other things, like you know, the fear of uh, being judged by their peers. If that prevents other types of, I think, in fact, we talked about it before that there was so... I forget the exact topic, but we were talking about how like there's not enough sharing of notes or communi- or like communication between therapists sometimes. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because of that, because of like the uh, the fear of like, well, I don't want them to judge me. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was just talking to a friend who's a um, – that that's very funny. I was talking to a friend who is a school counselor and he, uh, you know, so he works as a kind of a therapist basically. You know, he's a trained therapist as a school counselor. And he said – he was telling me how he's – perfectly comfortable giving speeches in front of 300 students and parents and things like that but if he's giving speeches or, or doing training or whatever in front of peers like teaching peers or or counselor peers he's terrified of being judged <laughs> right? yeah that's ex- that's probably exactly <laughs> yeah. this yeah when I first started in my
0: career for the first five six seven years I would get anxious sometimes when I conferred with other therapists because there was a part of me that was not confident yet in the field. Since that time, I have gained a confidence that now when I confer with other clinicians, I don't get that anxiety anymore because I know or I trust my brain to spit out enough jargon to handle my own in a conversation, you know. But in the beginning, I didn't have that. And sometimes there would be other clinicians that would actually seemingly judge me uh, yeah. I, yeah, like I, I, I'll never forget this one therapist and it became a pet peeve of mine <laughs> where we were talking about a client that we shared and she we're talking and I'm and I'm realizing that I'm tripping over my words and I you know I'm getting you know, I'm not confident and I, I'm I'm probably sounding like a novice a novice. And she says to me, Have you read the book So and Such and Such by So and So? Yeah. And I said, no, I mean, just as a side note, the chance of someone reading a random book that you have read I mean unless it's Harry Potter right. is really low. So assume no one else has read this book. But I've have I've had so many people be like you know they'll know me as a clinician. Oh, you've read you've read the book blah blah blah.
1: Right. And it's and it's <laughs>
0: obvious to me now that when someone reads a self-help book or some kind of psychology book, they think that's the only book in the field. I see and it. as I referred to earlier, there is a mount I would say half of the words that have ever been been written have been in, have been in psychology. I mean, psychologists and and those attached to psychology love to write. You know, and so you know. Anyway, so so she's saying, you know, have you, have you read this book? And, and I said, no, I haven't. And I'm already feeling insecure. And then she says, well, you should.
1: Oh, so this this
0: became a pet peeve of mine when whenever well, I would should. whenever I talk to a therapist. <laughs> They were either cool, and we would get along really well, and I wouldn't feel intimidated, or they'd be one of those people that would say, have you read this book? Because you really should read this book. Right. And I still get that, even though now I'm pretty confident. Right. Um, And incidentally, I've been practicing for 18 years, so I've had a lot of years of confidence behind me so far. (laughs) Maybe it'll take a backswing, but...
1: uh, Currently. Did you uh, speak? Did you ever read the Modern Ape? <laughs> well, you should.
0: Well, it's a very, <laughs> it's a
1: very, uh, <laughs> it's a very popular book. No, I was, I was trying to use the, I was trying to use the uh, phrase. Well, you should. Yeah, yeah. But you yeah. didn't play along. You were. Well, you shouldn't have no. picked a, a book I've heard of because, uh, damn that's, it, that's a common. That's but a, I didn't want to pick something too
0: far off. But that's field. the point. If someone said that book, <laughs> then yeah, you could say. But the books uh, that people okay. pick to that, you know, they'll pick totally random Uh, (laughs) books by unknown authors, but to them, it's, you know. So, because therapists... Feel shame and they are reluctant to talk about difficulties for damage, you know, for fear of damage to their reputation. There are a lot of shocking statistics, one of which, let me throw this one at you. One study found that 97%, this should have been a tougher bluff, 97% of supervisees admitted to withholding important information from their supervisors. So that's 97% of supervisees admitted. So let's just say there's another 3% that um, actually, do it and don't admit it. Wow! And all these supervisees are withholding important information from their supervisors. Wow! And presumably, some of this important information has to do with therapist difficulties, right? And presumably, the reason for that is because these supervisees are ashamed mm-hmm. of what they've experienced, or they're worried that their
1: supervisor oh is going to say you're a terrible therapist. Well, especially if, like, in the first example you gave, imagine if you know you're you're training, right? You're And then you have this client and the client's like, you are so ineffective as a therapist. I hate you. You know, your therapy is terrible. And then so, of course, you're going to be scared to go to your supervisor and go like, hey, just FYI, my client told me I'm a terrible therapist. Totally. Oh, by the way, it was the naked ape I meant. The Naked Ape. Oh. That's why we both were like, I think, I was trying to make up some random name, but I almost came up with The Naked Ape, which was the... What did you say originally? The Modern Ape. Or or the moder- oh, The Modern... Oh, it's yeah. funny. Yeah. In my, head,
0: <laughs> in my head, I knew what you were referring to. Well, I was trying to, to go for <laughs> something
1: obscure, but anyways. Who wrote that book? Yeah. The Naked Ape. I forget the author, but he's written a couple or two or three books like that, where it was like uh, observing humans in a zoological way, you know, and kind of looking at it from an unbiased... Uh, perspective. If you were, if you're just observing how animals behave, it's really a fascinating read. You should, you should read it. Ethologist Desmond Morris. Desmond Morris. And the
0: the the uh, cover has three naked butts.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, I remember this. That was a famous book. That's
1: what I. I was trying to not name a, na- a name that we knew, but I came up with the modern name. <laughs> yeah.
0: Maybe you should get trained on how to do humor. <laughs>
1: Okay, so let's summarize what we've
0: established so far. Difficulties are common. They're linked to negative effects for both therapist and client. Therapists are insufficiently trained. Therapists are only vaguely aware of difficulties, and they're reluctant to seek help due to shame. Yeah. And they hide their difficulties from others. It's
1: like the wor- worst of all. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: Therefore, we need to do something about this. This is a problem, right? But before we do something in this field, we must understand first. And this is what distinguishes scientists from other people. Politicians. Not, <laughs> non-scientists <laughs> that just... Behave without knowledge So one of the things researchers like to do, like myself, is add new knowledge to the field. So in order to add new knowledge to the field, you have to know old knowledge to the field. So let's review old knowledge on difficulties. shall we?: Let's do it.: So I won't go into detail on every single study, but there are, are tougher bluffs.: the, There are four studies only on therapist, diffic- therapist difficulties. Which compared to other topics, this is very little. Yeah, it sounds like it. or very few. There's a word in there I'm supposed to be using, but
1: very brevity. They're very brevity. <laughs> the preferred
0: word in research is scant. There's scant literature.
1: Scantily clad literature.
0: Oh, I never draw that <laughs> drew that connection.
1: In these four
0: research studies on difficulties, they all proposed typologies of difficulties. So they polled a number of therapists and asked, what sort of difficulties do you run into? And I, again, I won't go into the details, but each one of these four studies developed typologies, different typologies of difficulties. So, for instance, one is puzzled. You know, that's a type of difficulty. So there's that. Also, previous literature has discovered frequency of difficulties. So according to one really large study for this sort of thing, that involved 5,000 therapists from around the globe in uh, various countries. When asked to rate how frequent they run into difficulties with zero meaning never and five meaning very often – they generally run between 1 and 2 on, on average. So, not very often. So, if you have 5 is very often and 0 is never and the average is 1 or 2 in terms of the, you know, they have they had like right. they had like 20 different difficulties that they ran into. And you know, it's not very often. So, that kind of leads me to a couple conclusions and let me know if you have any here. Mm-hmm. But what it what it means is that it's pretty rare that difficulties occur. And maybe that's why there aren't trainings on it. Because when you have something that doesn't happen very often and then you add shame on top of that, which which drives all these stories underground, right. then it might appear as though it never happens. Right. These sort of thing this sort of thing never happens. And then why have a training on something that never happens? Right. So that's 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 one conclusion. The other thing that they did with this study is they asked people how long they've been a therapist, from you know, just starting out to being a therapist for 50 years and they, you know, charted it out to see if frequency changed as you got more experience. And there's a slight dip in the amount of frequency of difficulties, but not much. Which is interesting, right? Because, again, you would think, oh, novices run into difficulties because they don't know how to handle it. And, and surely, after 50 years of being a therapist, you don't have difficulties anymore because mm-hmm. you've seen it all. But that is not the case when you, look, when you look at the data. It stays pretty static. It's pretty much the same, yeah.
1: Again, not sure if they knew what they were being asked, right? Like, hey, rate how many times you run into difficulties. But as we've already agreed, there were none really agreed definitions that everyone understands about difficulties. Well, they right? did. They, they
0: had 20 different items, like how many times has a client killed themselves, or how many times have you felt... Uh,
1: I'm sorry. Okay, how so many they times have you asked felt, them Yeah, how many times, times have you felt threatened? Okay, well then let us let me flip it around a little bit. I, I would like to see all those questions they asked, and I bet you that they're, they're not a comprehensive list of the types of difficulties that the therapist could run into. That's one angle. And the other one is I'm kind of thinking that like so so let's take the let's take the hypothesis of that that it actually doesn't happen that frequently. Okay, so let's if that is the case, uh, that doesn't make it any less necessary to be prepared for those rare occurrences. In fact, it almost makes it more necessary because if it is a rare occurrence, you're not encountering it very frequently, which means you're not getting a lot of practical practice on how to deal with it Yeah. Uh, as opposed to everyday occurrences. Like things like, hey, how do I introduce myself to a client? Well, hell, you you got to learn how to do it. But once you learn how to do it, you're going to get to practice it for the rest of your life. Right. Whereas, you know what? I had, this had never happened to me in the, my first five years. Today, the guy walked in with a gun, and I had no idea what to do. Right. And since I didn't, he shot me and himself and everyone in the building. And now I'm dead, and we're in heaven, yes, and we're exactly, talking about exactly.
0: this. So the study that I'm referring to is by Orlinsky and Ronstad. It was published in 2005, and the study is so comprehensive— the you know again 5,000 therapists from around the globe and the survey was so long they asked about so m- di- the difficulties section uh-huh. was just a small part of the uh-huh. overall survey that the study requires a book a book yeah because normally it's just a, a, a journal article yeah. <laughs> what you're looking at right here is like a good sized book yeah Th- this is all the findings and you that's know that's fascinating yeah right? and the discussion oh, but, yeah.
1: by the way why do so many researchers and books published by researchers researchers last names and then Insky that's a good question <laughs> I don't even know if that's true. (laughs) Um, So, so, okay. So they
0: asked all the therapists in in the study 5,000 from around the globe, how often currently, how often do you feel, for instance, lacking in confidence that you can have a beneficial effect on the patient? Another one, how often do you feel unsure how to best deal effectively with a patient? So there's a number of questions Mm -hmm. having to do with having self doubt. Another category is frustrating treatment case. So they say, so how often do you feel angered by factors in the patient's life that make a beneficial outcome impossible? Or how often do you feel distressed by your powerlessness to affect a patient's tragic life situation?
1: Well, it's interesting, though. So a lot of these questions, although they might be more broad than initially, I thought, um, but a lot of the questions could still give you the an interestingly deceptive conclusion because... If you asked me, for example, uh before I went to therapy, how often are you are you depressed right? I would have told you, oh I, from one to five, I'd be like zero well zero point five and it was only after I found out that me laying in bed till noon on a day that I have to go to work is actually depression that I would have said. Oh, yeah, actually 4.5. Right. So along those lines, if you're not aware, as you're saying, of your
0: experience, you might not accurately respond to these questions. Also, if you're ashamed and you become in denial Mm -hmm. to protect yourself from the painful reality of, say, failing a client, then you might not also remember and or accurately fill this up. And just the last category is negative personal reaction. So they ask a number of questions like the following. Currently, how often do you feel unable to find something to like or respect in a patient? How often do you feel unable to have much real empathy for the patient's experiences? This sort of thing. Oh, I see. The last thing that I can say in summary of the literature on difficulties that they have found is a typology of reactions to difficulties by the therapist. So it's 20 different reactions. So again, they all a bunch of therapists and said, how do you react to difficulties? And they came up with things like feeling helpless, disgust, nausea. Uh, so a lot of different reactions. And I won't read them all, but there's a, there's a long list there. Okay. So so that's the entirety of the literature on difficulties. That's wow. all we know on difficulties. But one can't talk about difficulties without talking about a lot of other topics that are related to difficulties. Some people out there might be saying, well, aren't we really just talking about countertransference or aren't we really just talking about Treatment failures, they talk about treatment failures.
1: So my stepdad is a psychiatrist, and he works with the types of patients. They're violent or they're very psychotic. They're in that ward of the hospital where you don't want to go to.
0: He works in an an inpatient facility for severely mentally
1: ill. Yes. I would imagine that someone in that kind of role encounters situations like this all the time. Well, it depends on whether
0: it's distressing or not. For him, a typical day involves... A lot of very difficult patients, uh, but he probably doesn't react uh, with the stress see, cause he's to those used to it or something. Yeah. Okay. Now, it, as a person who doesn't work with chronically mentally yeah. ill people, the the rare moments that I do come across people with severe mental illness, it is difficult for me because I'm not used to it, but I'm guessing for him it's, it's it's
1: become the routine. Right. So he probably doesn't,
0: he, I mean, otherwise he would have quit a long time. Right. Right. He probably doesn't come home every day going, Oh my God, those people, they have (laughs) mental illnesses.
1: I don't know what to do. (laughs) Why did I choose this profession?
0: (laughs) So uh, just to list the other constructs that I looked into and looked into them very extensively are, that are related to difficult clinical moments are the following. Difficult patients. So the concept of difficult patient is related to difficult moments, but it's not the same. Can you see how they might not be the same?
1: Based, uh, for example, based on what we just discussed. Right. I could totally see how it's not the same. Right. So someone
0: yeah. could be a difficult patient, but the therapist yeah. might not experience a difficulty. Yeah, yeah. Another area of research is called life difficulties, meaning the therapist experiences some kind of life difficulty mm-hmm. like divorce or something. Right. It has the word difficulty in there, but it's right. not it's a not difficult clinical moment. Right. Another one is special emotional problems. There's research on that for the therapist. Again, it's more that's more of a global thing. It's not mm-hmm. a moment, you right. know, so some of these concepts have to do with things that happen over long periods of like, time
1: like if the therapist is it himself or herself suffering from depression or something. Exactly. But it's an ongoing thing. Right. Yeah.
0: Having depression as a result of being a therapist does not constitute a difficult clinical moment. Right. Difficult clinical moments can lead to lead depression. To, right, yeah. right, right. Another concept is countertransference, which can be briefly summed up as therapist feelings and reaction to a client. And some of those feelings could be difficult and distressful for the therapist, and some of them might not be. So that's another thing. Critical incidence is another area. I won't go into that. Negative therapeutic reactions another topic is treatment failures again some treatment failures could be distress could be distressful for the therapist and some of them might not be plus treatment failure doesn't happen in a discrete moment usually it's usually happening over time another area of research stressful moments Similar to difficult moments, honest, honestly, it, it it is kind of a, it's probably the closest concept to difficult clinical moments because it has moment, but it's stressful, which mm. is a little different than difficult or distress. True, yeah, because yeah, stress is, you know, is a particular kind of, maybe you could say stressful moments are a particular kind of difficult clinical moment. Uh, feelings of incompetence is related but not the same. Relationship rupture, related but not the same. Another area, vicarious trauma or secondary trauma. Again, this happens over time. It's not necessarily a discrete moment. It can be. And the last one is therapeutic impasse. So I looked into all these different areas of research and literature to make sure that difficult clinical moments is a different construct than these, because when you're starting to embark on a long project in research, you don't want to be conceptually problematic from the beginning, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay, so conclusion of what is established already in the literature. There's a lot of research on related topics, but they're related and they're not the same. And I, and I actually personally believe that the concept of the difficult clinical moment is an important thing to focus on mm-hmm. because it, it really focuses on that moment in which the therapist is having a freak out. Mm-hmm. you know? Right. Um, okay. So there's a lot of research on related topics. And we also, I also found that there's scant research on difficulties themselves. There's only those, those four studies. Right. And of that scant research, the previous research focused on typologies and frequencies of difficulties. So developing, you know, categories of difficulties and how often they happen. So this is this is good for us. You know, it's good knowledge. But if I'm going to do something to add knowledge mm-hmm. to the topic of difficulties, uh, what do you think? Where what, What's the gap in the research?
1: Right. Well, let's say we've identified, we've agreed on the types and we've agreed on frequency or whatever. But then as a therapist, I still don't know what to do. <laughs> okay. So like, if it does happen to me, rare or not, what do I do? Okay. So How do that, I handle it? So that's a gap. Right. That is not the gap I
0: decided to exploit. so oh, what, interesting. What's another gap, do you think?
1: Okay. We're talking about the shame related to, to the, and not sharing it with your supervisor and other things like that. How to study the shame effects of those moments, which is kind of weird. Okay. How to recognize... You know, just in the first place. How do I even recognize? Forget what I do. Like, how do I even recognize I've had a difficult moment? Okay. Right?
0: So, yeah. So, you're looking at a lot of Mm how-tos, which are important. And one might be able to derive that last how-to from the typologies because... Oh, I have an idea
1: then. Okay. You probably gave it away in the beginning. But let me me say, (laughs) the other thing we could do is do case studies. Like, actually find out, talk to people that have had difficult... Clinical moments and find out what they were and document and then try to find uh, either, either uh, how did, how they handled it uh-huh. right and and just basically like put together like because because instead of just like here's the types we've agreed on them and here's the frequency it's like well here's some examples and. Uh-huh. And here are like how how ther- different therapists handle it or things like that.
0: Yeah. You're you're really hammering on the how to handle it mm-hmm. angle, which is not what I decided to explain. It's really interesting to hear, to see your gears working on, mm-hmm. on like what is not being, because that's probably the most pragmatic thing. Sure, right. But researchers aren't always very pragmatic. <laughs> so I'm like realizing like, huh, maybe I picked the wrong topic. <laughs> but anyway, one, pat- one, one massive gap is uh-huh. really a lack of depth in the knowledge. Mm. So we have a lot of, again, typologies and frequency, but this is shallow knowledge. There's not a lot of depth to that knowledge. And specifically, there's been no phenomenological inquiry, and I'll get into more what a phenomenological research study involves. Here are some questions that I thought of that the previous research on difficulties could not answer. Like, what is the experience like? What Mm -hmm. does it feel like to go through a difficult clinical moment? How do therapists describe it? Right. Are there general themes of experience? Right. Maybe there are, maybe there there are not. And so uh, I decided to look into that.
1: Yeah, I think that's what I was talking about, which is that the like interview people that have actually had those and Yeah, but you like, were going you know,
0: after the how to, you were saying, you know, how did you deal with it or or case studies, which is a, yeah. which is one particular form of research. But um but I, I wanted to find out what it felt like mm-hmm. in that moment for the therapist. I see. So the purpose of my study was to fill that gap. And specifically, it was to study seasoned psychotherapists' meaning of the experience of difficult clinical moments. It might That might sound a little funny because phenomenological researchers like to use these weird phrases like the meaning of experience, and I'll get into more of that later. But so some people out there might be wondering, hey, you just brought in seasoned. You know, why are you bringing in, bringing in seasoned psychotherapists? What's the big deal with seasoned psychotherapists? Well, research shows that when therapists disclose their difficulties to other therapists it tends to normalize the experience reduce the stigma and encourage other people to share their stories of difficulty which makes sense right well when seasoned psychotherapists in particular share share their stories it's even more effective at reducing shame and eliciting honesty from other people so that was one of the reasons why i involved seasoned psychotherapists The other reason was I personally just wanted to learn from their wisdom. If I wanted to talk to a group of people in the field, I wanted to talk to those people that had been in it a long time. So that's another reason. Okay, so my initial hopes for this study were to, again, increase understanding, normalize difficulties, reduce shame, increase consultation among therapists inform training and supervision efforts learn how to prepare cope and make right, use right, of, right. of these moments of these moments <laughs> okay. that's what schmeigel yeah
1: <laughs> of these moments <laughs> it's precious these moments <laughs> um
0: i also wanted to reduce those negative therapist effects that i was talking about earlier and ultimately improve client outcomes all right. So, what was the method or the methodology of the study that I conducted? Well, the research type that I used was called is called phenomenological research. And it's a very complicated topic that it, I sort of barely understand at this point in my career, but because it's very complicated, but in a nutshell, it's a way of approaching the world through wonder and curiosity mm-hmm. so you don't go into it with any biases or assumptions you know when you when a lot of researchers go into things they often have an assumption or they they're trying to prove something a lot of times they're not supposed to they're supposed to be open to whatever mm-hmm. the data tell you but a lot of people want to prove something you know like a democrat decides to study how stupid republicans are you know <laughs> you're, you're you you go into it trying to prove something well, well in-
1: sometimes you have to right because you have a you have a hypothesis and you need to prove the negative or, or try to find evidence for it or something but yeah but you're right that if you're if you're like i'm gonna buy golly I'm going to show that this thing leads to that thing, Right. right. come hell or high water. Right. And, <laughs> and there's
0: usually an agenda to some yeah. extent. They're, you know, people, they're really hoping yeah. that they prove something because it will help them further some effort that, That's right. that they're doing. Well, in phenomenological research, you're not supposed to have that. You're supposed to approach it with complete curiosity to what the participants tell you, and you just need to be ready for that. And if you have an agenda you, from the beginning, you've already failed as at that <laughs> at that study. So, as a researcher myself, I spent a good amount of time and a good amount of effort putting aside any assumptions about it. But honestly, it wasn't that hard because so, every once in a while, I would get weak and I'd think, "Oh, I wonder what it's going to be like for the. Yeah. I wonder what the participants are going to tell me." Yeah. And I drew a blank. Yeah. Um, I mean, can you imagine what it What it would be, I mean, just just off the top of your head, like if you asked people what their experience was like...
1: Well, I can only project what I would probably... Like, Like yeah.
0: Like, a gen, like, what do you think would be generally the same among all therapists, among all difficult clinical moments? Do you know yeah, what I mean?
1: That's hard. To, yeah, that's hard to imagine.
0: Right. Because the difficult clinical moments we've already talked yeah, about are, very are, broad, s- yeah. are so varied, right? That's right. And every therapist is different and da-da-da. Right. So, yeah, I was really drawing a blank. I really had no idea what I was going to find. And one of the worries of a phenomenological research is you're not going to find any similarity between the participants... And then your findings are really difficult to write. Right? You know what I mean. So, so I was like, well, if that happens, I guess I'm screwed. But you know, push on. So, phenomenological research is particularly interested in the way people experience the world. It's really trying to get at what it means for those people to experience that particular phenomenon. Interesting. So, it describes rather than explains. It's inductive rather than deductive. Mm -hmm. It involves interviews and it searches for the general essence of the experience. So the phenomenon in the phenomenological research study that I worked on is the seasoned psychotherapist experience of the difficult clinical moment. So when I was interviewing seasoned therapists, I needed to emphasize, I'm interested in your experience, which they didn't, they weren't used to being asked About, Mm. So they really gave me a lot of extraneous information, you know, things that that were surrounding their experience, but not their experience. So, you know, so I really had to focus in on on their experience. How did you feel? Right. Exactly. So the participants that I Mm. included in the study were any anybody that provides psychotherapy. So that includes any professional anyway. So that includes psychologists, marriage and family therapists, mental health counselors, clinical social social workers, psychiatrists, and pastoral counselors. Some people in this country refer to themselves as licensed professional counselors, but in Seattle we don't have those. In Washington State we don't have those. So they weren't included because I needed to be able to meet with them in person, Mm -hmm. and so it was all the people in the area. They needed to be trained at a graduate training program. They needed 15-plus years of postgraduate experience which is that seasoned part, and I put some efforts into trying to provide as diverse a sample as possible. So I wanted to get a good mix of genders, a good mix of ethnicities. Uh, all right, so the sample size was 10 participants. Does that surprise you that there's so few participants?
1: Well, it depends on, on the goal because, again, you're, you're not necessarily trying to prove like, okay, in all cases of a blah, 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 here's what you do, right? right? Right, And, you know, the sample size is actually probably relatively large considering the number of seasoned therapists in the area that meet those criteria. Oh, there's there's hundreds of people that sure, be there. Sure, but tw- how many did you say, 15? 10. 10. 10. 10 out of 100 is still 10%, right? Out of 1,000 is still 1%. Yeah. So, so it depends on what you're trying to go for, right? But, right.
0: Well, so you're, you, you, hit a, you hit one reason in that... You're not trying to make a numerical, generalized right. statement in the way that yeah. you do when you're doing quantitative yeah. or number-based research. This is a different philosophy altogether. You're trying to get at the discovery of meaning. Right. You're not trying to uh, prove a statistical reality.
1: You well, know? And also, it matters how you selected them, right? If these are all your buddies that you knew and you like how they think, that right. would be a biased approach. And, and
0: I didn't, I, I, I chose friends of friends of friends. Mm-hmm. And again, I tried to get people in various professions with right. various different backgrounds and different theoretical orientations, right. this sort of thing. So um, in phenomenological research, another reason why we only use about 8 to 12 participants is because they have found that when you add an additional 10 or an additional 100, that it doesn't actually lead to more information. Mm-hmm. Usually by the time you get to 10 interviews, you've reached a saturation point on certain themes mm-hmm. that you actually find you know, adding another ten people, you're just—it's just more redundant right. information. So, ten is usually a good—a good amount.
1: So, so one uh, thing is, I used to have before I was a professional uh, mountain climber, I used to have or hiker, as I call myself now. Um, I used to work in the software development industry. What they do sometimes is they do phenom- phenomenological research. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And they actually—you're right—they bring in 10, 20 participants. Not yep. more than that. Yeah. Uh, because what they're trying to go for is like, hey, here, use this thing. Use this software. Yeah. We're going to film you. Yeah. And we're only going to film you. And and we're going to ask you to do things like, you know, how would you order an email or how would you write an email? Right. right. We're not going to tell you what's right and wrong. We're just going to. And then they ask afterwards, you know, like, how did that feel? What, did you find what you were looking for? Mm-hmm. And they, I, I think the reasoning is the same, that if, if you do a thousand people, fine, you'll find this idiosyncrasies. But you're not going to learn about the most common things that much more than you do with the first few.
0: Right. That's that's not technically phenomenological research. It's 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 focus group research yeah. and they involve several different types of research in that. You could you could make the argument that when they're asking the participant about their experience, they're temporarily phenomenological, yeah. but they're also watching to see how they use the the thing and
1: yeah i didn't really mean like they don't call it by the way they don't call they they call it focus user right. focus groups but 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 they are small groups that was my point right exactly
0: and yeah. so they know through experience that if they do a hundred focus groups, Phenomenological. they, they Phenomenological. really only needed to do one. Phenomenological. 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 Yeah, and actually before I was a therapist, I did focus group research. Um, did I ever tell you about that? I think you did. I worked at a marketing research firm when I was 23. That's why I became a therapist, by the way, was because, not because I liked this, I, I, hated, yeah, you know, true, I <laughs> hated working in marketing. <laughs> And I mean, it was sort of interesting, but it was, it was ultimately empty and meaningless to me. Mm-hmm. Sorry out there, any marketers, <laughs> but I found myself thinking, if I do this for the next 50 years of my life, how okay. fulfilling is that going to be? Just trying to sell right. people things, you know? And, and incidentally, it was so long ago that I did a focus group for ESPN.com. And I had never seen the internet before <laughs> until I did this focus group when they were showing ESPN.com on a T1 connection, by the way. Whoa. And I didn't see another connection like that for you know 15 years later or something, or I don't know, 10 years later. But but um, Was your mind blown? My mind was totally blown because I'd heard of the internet. I remember AOL had some internet interface or yeah. something, but I had heard of it and I thought, and do you remember... Um, do you remember uh, the Microsoft on CD encyclopedia? Yeah. What was that? Encarta? Encarta. Yeah. yeah. It was described to me that the internet was sort of like Encarta uh. because, because <laughs> Encarta used hypertext. Yeah. It was sort of like Wikipedia. Encarta yeah. was sort of like where you could yeah. click on, you know, like they'd say the uh, Civil War and then you'd see a right. hypertext or Abraham Lincoln and you could click on Abraham Lincoln and it would go to the Abraham Lincoln page. That's right. And da da da. And so but I was like why would anyone want that cuz it's not an encyclopedia on right. the internet it's a bunch of random things that no one wants to read which incidentally it was in the That's beginning That's
1: true and it still is <laughs> Yeah
0: but anyway we did a focus group with a bunch of sports nerd sports guys and the big thing was they would be able to find out sports scores of their teams that were not on local TV right right or on the the one cable channel that was available which is another kind of funny thing cuz it's like if you want to watch your team now <laughs> there is no problem doing right. that. but back then if you you're could. a cubs if you're a cubs fan and you're living in Seattle you'd have to wait until the newspaper came out and if and it would have to just happen to report That's on that That's true huh Yeah
1: maybe the radio some radio station or something
0: yeah maybe maybe, maybe. You could, but but before internet radio it would have to be local right. radio so so the ESPN.com, they they saw well maybe we can get people to use the internet uh-huh. if, if we give them sp- only the box scores it right. wasn't even the game it was just the box scores of these games in other towns Wow and these guys were like oh my god the this I'm gonna use this all the time <laughs> little did I know that it would dominate our lives Including what we're doing right now. That's right. (laughs) But anyway, okay. Huh? Phenomenological, right? So how did I collect my data? Well, the first thing I did was was I administered a short demographic survey just to get the lay of the land. Then I conducted what they call an unstructured interview. And I audio and video recorded it. Most of the interviews took place in their therapy offices. So I was often sitting in the chair that the client was sitting in during the difficult clinical moments in which they described. And I always started off the interviews with the following prompt. I would say, please tell me your experience of one or more difficult clinical moments. And then they would just talk and talk and talk. And I would only ask clarifying questions. Mm -hmm. And and I let them talk for as long as they wished, and it was usually about an hour.
1: Clarifying questions like, don't you mean you're scared? (laughs) So, right. Those
0: would be terrible questions. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) And as I was analyzing the data, I was... I was wishing that I had asked questions like that, but of course, that would have been leading the witness, as they say. All
1: right. So, what are the results? Oh, I'm sorry. So, one question. Sorry. One quick question. So, you said, what was your experience, blah, blah, blah. And then they start talking, and you're recording them. Are you filming them and recording their audio? Yeah. And then if, if you don't understand something, you ask them, oh, what do you mean by that or stuff like that? Right. Okay. And how long?
0: About an hour. Now. Okay. Yeah. And the average participant described three moments.
1: Okay. Oh, dif- really?
0: Three difficult moments. Okay. Yeah. So participant demographics. Uh, so let's talk about the findings from the short survey I gave. A, right. A, just a little written survey. The ages were between 42 and 71, but most people were, were, were between the ages of 58 and 71. So most people were in their 60s. Okay. Half females, half males. So five males, five females. That's how they identified. Ethnicity, six identified as white or Caucasian, three identified as mixed ethnicity, and one identified as Jewish. And five identified as gay. So seven of of the 10 participants had at least one identity of diversity, either ethnicity or Mm -hmm. being gay. Therefore, the sample could be considered diverse if according to some definitions of diversity. So that, that was one thing I wanted to capture. Even though it's not a quantitative Research study. I didn't want all the therapists to be white, for instance. So, all right. Professions involved. There were three licensed psychologists. There were three mental health counselors. There were two licensed social workers. And there were two practitioners with dual licenses in marriage and family therapy and mental health counseling. Their professional membership in different organizations was is a long list, but things like the American Counseling Association, American Psychological Association, American Art Therapy Association, and the list just goes on and on. So a very diverse group of people practicing various different theoretical orientations and different modes of therapy. Years of experience w- were between 15 and 36, but most had between 30 and 36. Wow! So the average participant was in their 60s and had about 33 years of experience. Wow! Therefore, the sample could also be considered professionally diverse in that they come from a lot of different licenses and professional organizations and theoretical orientations. Okay. So what difficult clinical moments did they describe? They all just so the total number was about 30 difficult clinical moments. But I'm just gonna provide four examples just to yeah. give you an idea of what they chose to describe. For example. For example, a child client tells a story of severe abuse. So a right. woman therapist was talking about how her client told her a story of torture oh, and how God. this was very difficult for her in the moment. Another female therapist described a client decompensating in session, having what appeared to be a panic attack or okay. this sort of thing. And she felt difficulty and distress in that moment. Uh-huh. A male therapist talked about a client threatening his safety. Oh, wow. So he was afraid of... The therapist, the client, was going to hurt him in the session. Yeah. Wow. Another therapist described a moment in which the client humiliated him in front of others. So it was a group therapy situation, and the client humiliated the therapist in front of all those people.
1: Oh, wow. And that
0: and that produced distress yeah. for the therapist in that moment. Okay. So how did I analyze? Um, the the data well the first thing I did was I transcribed all 10 interviews which is a laborious process mm-hmm. that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy it is mind-numbingly boring and frustrating and um,
1: that's over 10 hours of
0: video footage that you're like yeah pouring over <laughs> yeah and it probably takes 10 hours to transcribe one hour Unless you're a professional transcriptionist yeah. and you have all the equipment and you type yeah. fast and whatnot, it takes a long time.
1: And you can't hire something, someone for that for, for I, the. I
0: halfway through, I decided to hire somebody. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Okay, so the first thing that phenomenological researchers attempt to do is to what they call bracket or shelve any any assumptions that they have prior to analyzing the data. So they look for in their own psyche any assumptions and biases that they have about the phenomenon and try to bracket them and put them aside so that they can be as open as possible to what the participant is trying to tell them. So I, I tried to do that. But that wasn't that hard because, again, as I was saying earlier, I didn't really know what I was going to find. So I didn't right. have a lot of assumptions to bracket, honestly. So then the first the step after that is I take one transcript at a time. And the first thing I do is I listen for the whole. I try to get the gist of what the participant is trying to tell me as a whole. And then the second thing I do is I go through line by line, word by word, sentence by sentence, and delineate what they call meaning units. So if Ooh, so wow. so if there's a paragraph where they're talking about fear, I would label that as like fear and that would be a meaning unit and sometimes one paragraph could have 10 meaning units or one or mm-hmm. none so that's what, how do you determine That's your own opinion okay. you're, but but really what you're trying to do is label it, from what the participant is trying to tell you, not what you think of it per se, but yeah. what, what are they trying to tell me in this moment? So you're, you're very curious. It sounds like they're talking about fear in this but moment. But it's still your interpretation. It's still an interpretation, okay. that's right. So the next phase is to go through all the meaning units and start clustering them in that one interview into different themes. So if I see several different references to fear... I would clump all those meaning units into a theme. Okay, mm. then I wrote a summary, which was about two or three pages, four pages long, and I included quotes. And I send that to the participant, and I ask them to tell me if I've accurately summarized what they were trying to tell me.
1: Oh, the, that's in, and that's an interesting step, right? Because that can help clarify if you were applying unconscious bias biases. In your summation words or whatever. Right. They might say, well, I wasn't really going for fear here. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And sometimes
0: they said just that. They said it's a little inaccurate and I they would see. say this is let me tell you how to make it more accurate I see. this is an important step that in other research designs they do not do right. i mean how often do researchers oh, say <laughs> did i get
1: this right send back the survey results yeah. do you want to be counted in this 20% yeah
0: did did, <laughs> did i accurately represent what you were trying to tell me yeah. phenomenological researchers take accuracy very seriously in fact most phenomenological researchers refer to the participants as co-researchers for this reason. Oh, interesting. They're not participating in the researcher's study. They actually are co-researchers in the, in the
1: study. You're all trying but, to find out the things together.
0: Right. I incorporate the feedback, and then I do that for all 10 Right. Of, the, inter- of wow. the interview transcripts. It takes a long time. And then once I get all 10 ac- you know, accurately depicting each participant's experience, I start looking for similarities between the summaries. So using the example of fear, mm-hmm. if I see fear represented as a theme in more than one of the interviews, then I start clumping those together mm-hmm. and putting quotes together. And this took, I'm telling you, forever. Uh-huh. I, I lived in the transcript data for three months straight. <laughs> All of my free time was spent Reading over, yeah. it. I memorized every line oh, of these. Trans- I mean, if you ask me right now, when did this happen on this interview? I'd, <laughs> I'd have a gener- I'd know exactly where to go. Wow, you know, it, it, it was a very interesting process. The other thing that I learned about phenomenological research is that when you're listening to someone and you're interviewing somebody in person, yeah, you get a certain set of understandings, uh, you know, absorbed from what the person is trying to tell you. But when you sit down with the transcript and the video and the audio and you live with that one hour of interview for three months, different meanings come out of that. You you start seeing a lot more than what you picked up on when you were in person with the person.
1: Well, as a simple, simple example, you've seen The Sixth Sense, obviously. Uh spoiler spoiler alert if you're listening and you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil the movie, so you could fast forward this part. But anyways, so you know, obviously you find out at the end that the guy is. greenest people, Soiling, green is people. So you find out that he's been alive. And I don't know what your experience was, but most of us, I would say, most of us, including me, uh when I saw the movie, I thought, Oh, this is a great ghost movie and I loved it. And right. when the ending hit, yeah, I was like, What? It was shocking. Yeah. But when I went back and rewatched the movie, I'm like, This was so obvious. Uh. How did I not see this coming? Right. And it's that's, you know, you watch something more than once, especially if you watch it more than twice, three times. You, you definitely pick up, even on something as pop culture y as, as a movie, let alone in something as subtle and, and, and nuanced as this emotional interview.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah, that's a good example. So once I had those general themes developed, and I developed six general themes among the ten interviews. I set upon developing what they call an essential general structure of the phenomenon, which is basically a narrative of what it generally feels like to go through a difficult clinical moment. But I'll get into more of that later. Okay, so let's get into those six themes that I found. So the first theme is feeling fear as I was referring to earlier, all 10 of the participants during at least one of their described difficult clinical moments described some form of fear. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So they described feeling afraid, anxious, scared, frightened, panicked, nervous, worried, terrified, horrified, frozen with fear. Wow. Like like a deer in headlights, feeling unsafe or fight or flight.
1: Wow. So a lot of fear. Does that surprise you? Because uh, as we were saying, there's lots of different types of dis- d- uh, difficult situations. And I personally, this is where I would come in with biases probably, would be that I wouldn't find a lot of those things we mentioned uh, frightening. Some of them for sure, like a weapon or something like that. But like the, uh, hey, he's making fun of me. Like I might not find that frightening. You know. Right. I might find it like annoying or am- anger making me or whatever. You know? Right. Do you but like when the I, anger making me? He, that's
0: that's <laughs> one way of putting it. But when you really listen to what they were saying, there was some form of fear in Interesting. there. Interesting. So I bet you if in that, you know, yep. that example you gave, if a client was making fun of you yeah. and you got angry, if we really broke it down, uh-huh. in all likelihood, eventually you might say something like, I guess actually I was a little worried that someone was going to see and I was going to get called out. And I, might lose, ah, yeah. I might lose my job. So that's one of those cases where you go, don't
1: you really mean you're afraid?
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> but the thing was, was I didn't know right, the themes right. while I was interviewing. Right. <laughs> and that was another part of the, the, the interview process that was interesting, was that halfway through, you know, the 10 interviews, I just did a mental kind of review of the previous interviews and I said, there's no general themes that are going to come out. Oh, as
1: you were doing it, you yeah, didn't think there were themes. Because I, I
0: I, I didn't detect any of the themes I eventually detected, which is another reason why it's important to really look at the transcripts very closely because uh, you, when you're just listening to people you know, in person, you miss a lot of things. What? <laughs> so um, quotes of fear uh, were, I was frightened. That's a quote from one of the participants. Another person said, I was so nervous and so anxious. Pretty straightforward. Right. Another person said, I was feeling scared. So those are just some quotes of fear. Well, that could mean anything. It could mean anything. (laughs) Also, there were a lot of physical symptoms of fear that were reported. Adrenaline surge, feeling breathless okay butterflies in the stomach central nervous system activation you know when you're talking to psychologists yeah. they, they use those <laughs> kinds of words dry mouth face flushing heart pounding sweating tightness in the chest so these are visceral reactions to fear right yep. this isn't just an intellectual worry this is a, a right. bodily fear okay theme two feeling inadequate Eight out of the ten participants described feeling inadequate in at least one of their described difficult clinical moments. So being insecure, feeling useless, feeling incompetent, uh, having a lack of confidence, being embarrassed, or shame for failing as a therapist. So the second theme was feeling inadequate. That's that's my label for all these, all these words, okay. inadequacy. One quote of inadequacy is, why the hell don't you know what to do here? So they're saying that to themselves. Right. Why the hell don't you know what to do here? I should know what I ought to do here. I think there was some shame mixed in there. So that was an excerpt from one of the interviews.
1: So I should I, I would say that actually, that one happens to me professionally all the time as I'm hiking. But oftentimes we run into the situations where we'll be having one of our daily stand-up hike meetings and uh, someone will say, what do we do about this situation? It's been like this for weeks. Like we're stuck at a point in the hike and i'm the hike leader and i should feel like i I know what to do and i have a lot of experience hike leading and yet you get to moments where i don't i don't know what the right answer is here and then my one of the things i feel inside is how can you not like shouldn't you know shouldn't you always have an answer right but the truth is like no because there's always new things to find in hikes you know it's like right or in any job
0: right but if we Really want to be the sort of person that always knows what to do, and we don't know what to do, then we feel inadequate. That's right. And if other people expect us to know what to do and we don't know what to do, then we feel we might feel additionally inadequate, right? Yeah. And therapists are supposed to know what to do, right? That's right. <laughs> Not that I'm being facetious. No, of course. Of course. Yeah. The third theme out of six is feeling. Do you want to take a guess?
1: Okay. So this is the sixth theme. The third uh, out of six. The third. The third theme. So we said fear, inadequacy. Third theme might be confusion.
0: Oh, that's the fourth theme. We'll go to that one. Fourth theme is feeling confused. Good. Uh, Pretty straightforward there. One quote of confusion that I thought was particularly poignant was this. It was so brief and so unexpected. Never having confronted something like that, I wasn't prepared for it. I don't think I had heard enough, even in consultation groups or classes or workshops, that really prepared me. So this brings up two things. One is, is that often the participants described the moment as being brief and unexpected, a sudden onset of a moment that they did not expect to happen. And another element that was often described is they'd never encountered this sort of moment before or clinical situation before
1: it's like you come to a stoplight and it's a blue light
0: right yeah what that's a good example yeah (laughs) another element in this quote is that you know this person says i don't think i had heard enough even in consultation groups or classes or workshops that really prepared me Mm -hmm. so this is again pointing to that lack of training issue so that's good what's another theme do you think
1: okay so we've done fear inadequacy confusion How would I say this word? Do you Uh, feel confused and inadequate right now? I feel very confused and inadequate. Now, I'm trying to come up with a a word for the... Okay, so what I'm going for here is, I guess, anger. I'll I'll just say anger, but wasn't quite what I was going for. It was well, that's like, right. Feeling anger. Okay. Because yeah, here's here's what I was thinking in my head was was kind of like, it's almost like the 12 stages of grief or whatever it is. I don't know how many stages there are, but um, I was thinking in that in those terms, like how you might go through all these little mini stages in those moments. <laughs> you, you have 12 <laughs>
0: stages because it's like shock <laughs> and then depression and then strip clubs <laughs> and then cocaine and then. So, right. So, so you have, some so few, I have, a, you lot have a few of extra <laughs> extra stuff. steps in there. No,
1: but I was thinking like it, it's. A, it, it might, Even though it's a moment, it might evolve for you psychologically very fast, but you might go through all these things. And so I was thinking at some point you might turn it around and be like, God damn it, why is this happening? I'm, I'm pissed off. Right. You know? Right.
0: So... I, co- I I coded a lot of th- this was this theme was actually kind of hard to clump together okay because I clumped what I might actually consider to be two different things, okay. but uh, they're along the lines of what you're saying. Uh-huh. So things like frustration, fury, outrage, and aggression, hatred and rage. these yeah. are all anger feelings, right? right But I also clumped in with this disapproval, rejection, and judgment, okay. which isn't anger per se, but so if I really labeled this correctly, I would label it as 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 sort of a rejection feeling or something. A you know, feeling this a feeling your... that you want to you, you're 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 angry at the yes. the client. You want to reject yes. the client. Yes. You want to push them away right. emotionally.
1: It's it's very funny to me that I was having trouble coming up with the word that I needed because I was like, I was putting myself in the situation and empathizing in that moment. And what I was feeling was this, but I was having a hard time coming up with the exact word. And it's kind of like anger, but it's interesting that in your, in your analysis, you also struggled a bit to combine those into one word,
0: right? Cause we don't really have a word for that. Yeah. You know, the best word that I thought of was, was anger, but yeah. you could have said rejection, yeah. but there were actual feelings of anger. So this, this theme was a a bit harder for me
1: it might be even a little betrayal for me like right like like okay oh, i'm therapying you i'm treating you I so think.
0: so some people describe betrayal yeah. but i actually didn't find enough reference it, to betrayal okay.
1: incidentally so i fa- i
0: had six themes and and you know yeah. you can see that the theme here are feelings yeah there are probably 50 other reported things, oh, wow. but they weren't repeated enough. You need to have at least half of the participants describe it in order for it to be a generalized theme. I see. So think about a long list of different themes and you're trying to put everything together and so you know what i mean so for a while judgment and disapproval was different than anger but eventually i started bringing those together because they felt the same i see anyway so the fifth theme out of five any other ideas i'm guessing you won't get the last two so
1: hold on so we had uh, uh, so we had fear fear, and inadequacy inadequacy, anger and and, confusion yeah. yeah anger and confusion all right so we have two more two more and their themes, huh? Okay, so I'm like, ah, you're. I'm rejecting you. I've already been afraid. No, it's like, oh, uh, probably uh, uh a flight. Like, like uh, a des- uh, how do I say this? It's the uh, the leave the room. That's good. Feeling.
0: It's good. I subsume that in fear. Oh, okay. But but I also kind of scary, susu- yeah. but I also subsumed it in another. It was it's also kind of related to another one, which is the the sixth theme that I identified, which is feeling an urge to terminate. So terminate, f- so yeah. F- so in our language, when we end the therapeutic relationship, it's a tr- oh, it's a termination.
1: So, so I was actually thinking in the moment, I'm I'm getting the hell right, out of here, right? But but interesting because you mean in the moment feeling like, oh, that's it. I'm done with this guy or right. this gal or whatever.
0: But there were a few people that reported an urge to run specifically. Yeah. I, I felt an urge to run. Uh-huh. and But not enough people. And so it's kind of, I, th- I'm, I think I might have included that as a minor okay. category in the fear category. Got
1: it. Because it's like, ah, you know. Okay, so one of them is like the, the desire to terminate. Right. So, and this is
0: either an urge to refer the client to another therapist or to just terminate with the client altogether or an urge to never work at that population. Like I'm never going to work with children again. Or actually a f- couple people said that they had an urge to resign from the fr- pr- from the profession altogether. Oh so this is an urge to separate yourself from right. the stressor, right? And so I called it an urge to terminate. And a couple quotes here. One person said, I, I want to terminate, is what they said. <laughs> Another person said, I stopped working at that point, and I was never going to work again as a therapist. I said, I can't do this work anymore. So, so there we go.
1: Do you realize what you've just done, by the way? What? I want all our listeners to understand what's happened here. What? You have set in motion a a set of things that have saved our future. You've saved the future of humanity. How so? Because in the future, before you did this study and released it through this podcast, in the future, all these robots went through these difficult therapeutic moments and as a result decided to terminate. And come back in time and terminate. And you know what? Because they're going to listen to this podcast, they're going to learn about it and, and like, oh, these is just natural reactions. We don't need to go back and terminate. So by outing
0: the urge to terminate by the therapists, the future robots will not have the urge to terminate That's us. right. That's okay. what I'm saying. The fifth theme out of six, the last one that, that we'll review here, is feeling an urge to hide feelings. Ah. So a number of people described this urge to hide the feelings from the client in, in the moment. So one person said, as quickly as I felt it, I knew I had to control it. Another person said, my immediate response was a sort of belief that my vulnerability must not be seen. I needed to defend against what he was saying and deny it. So oh, so there were right. two there were two main reasons why people said that they had an urge to hide their feelings. One was out of shame. They just felt ashamed of how they felt and they didn't want it to be seen. Another uh, group of people said they hid their feelings to preserve the relationship. So if you're really angry at a, at a client, you might not want to express that because it might ruin the relationship and then the therapy is over. Right. So, so there are various reasons why they hid. A, a, an hypothesized reason that wasn't reported by them that I hypothesized is that in systems theory, Systems like to be in balance, and so you can consider the therapeutic relationship as a system, particularly if it's developing over time, if it has developed over time. And when you have a difficult feeling and an urge to lash out and be angry or, or an urge to express difficult emotion, the possibility of expressing difficult emotion toward a client, the system will self-regulate by figuring out a way to return to homeostasis or to stability. And one way to do that is for the therapist to hide those feelings, because if they do that, it, it enough time will progress to the right. point where the system will return to balance. Whereas if the therapist expresses all those feelings, so the, the client is exhibiting a difficult th- situation, the, the therapist has difficult emotions, and then we're in chaosville. Yeah, and systems don't generally like that, and so there's usually some kind of a reaction. Um, this, this systems theory applies to lots of things, ecology, yeah, obviously, yeah, but also in politics, Um, You know, the the Democrats do this and the Republicans have to do this to return it to a state of of stability. Okay, so reviewing the themes we have we have feeling fear, feeling inadequate, feeling anger, feeling confused, feeling an urge to hide feelings and feeling an urge to terminate. So those are the six themes that I found that. The participants were telling me about. Those are the general themes that were exhibited by at least half of the participants. There are many other sub-themes, mm-hmm. but, but they don't rise to the level of these six themes as in terms of a generalized feeling of right. the therapist during a difficult clinical moment. So then the final phase of the analysis is to develop what they call in phenomenological research the essential general structure. And this is a narrative of what it generally feels Feels like for a therapist to go through a difficult clinical moment and at first I thought this is an impossible task. I have 10 very different therapists I have got art therapists and and pastoral therapists and psychologists right. and CBT people and humanistic people and psychodynamic people and they're describing moments like, Someone comes in with a gun, another person has a client decompensate, another person has a client humiliate them, another, you know, that it's across <laughs> the board. How am I going to come up with one story right. that's accurate to all of those situations? That's right. impossible. It's not going to work. But I'm supposed to do it, so. I set to the task, and I was thinking about it, and I'm reading the, the transcripts, and I'm looking at the themes, and I'm totally swimming in the data, and I don't know which way is up, and I'm and I'm losing my mind, and then all of a sudden, this thing comes out of me, and I type it in probably five minutes, really, and it's it's you know kind of long, it's not really long, but I'm just it just f- you know flew out of me, and at the end of it, I thought. Well, that's not going to work. Yeah, because I have to go back to the participants and ask them if it's accurate. Uh-huh. I can't just say it's accurate. <laughs> so I have to send. So the previously I sent one summary right. to one in to to one. To, you know, so that right. was easy to do relative to this, where I'm trying to now get all ten
1: to, to agree to one narrative and all independently, right? All independently. You send them the narrative. Each person has to get back to you saying that's about right. Right now, I, I assume that in this process, at this point. You strip out the specifics, right? Otherwise, it would be incorrect for each right. Market. So
0: I'm trying to make it as general as yeah. possible, but not so general that it means that it's unrecognizable, that it means nothing. You know what I mean? <laughs> you so, go like, uh, "Bad stuff happened today at work, and it felt sort of bad," <laughs> and it but felt, not always in
1: quotes. Sort of bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So, um, so okay. So I send it to all the um, participants, and none of them provided any feedback. They all said, I nailed it. Really? Yeah.
1: This is not uncommon when you, when you dive so deep and you let your, your uh, subconscious brain process that all of a sudden you could put together uh, meaning and, and conclusions that you couldn't linearly talk your way through necessarily. Right. And I've experienced it in some ways in my past when I've, when I've been deep in some study. Uh, and it's cool when it happens. It doesn't always work, but it's cool when it happens.
0: Yeah, this was one of those moments. Yeah. And boy, was I happy. That's Because awesome. that meant that the analysis phase was yeah. over. Yeah. And I had my essential general structure. Right. I And incidentally, from the first moment I typed it, that one moment, the ending result was only slightly edited from there. I had a swear word in there. I think right, right, that I right. that I changed. Um, you know, during the anger portion, I was like "fuck you, client" or something, <laughs> like that. but uh, I changed that a little bit. So I won't read it, but um, I'll, I'll just summarize it because it's a little long. So essentially, this is it: when a difficult clinical moment happens, a therapist, the first thing they experience is fear, some form of fear. It could be worry, nervousness. Right. It could be actual terror. It could yeah. be. Feeling unsafe, deer in headlights, uh, fight or flight. Usually there's some kind of adrenaline, heart pounding, sweating, fear on some spectrum.
1: Yeah, Or not, boy, we're
0: prohibited. <laughs> yeah. Unless you didn't, then it didn't happen. Uh, the second feeling is confusion. So the therapist is afraid and then and then starts to think, okay, well, how can I fix the situation? Yeah. And they think, I don't know what to do. And this confusion is either... I don't even know where to begin. I've right. never seen this situation. I'm completely drawing a blank. Or they're faced with you know, a number of decisions, a set of options, and they don't know which of the two or three or four options to take. That's what they described. Mm-hmm. Okay. This, the third feeling is a feeling of inadequacy. Mm-hmm. So they look back and they say, okay, I'm afraid. I'm confused. I don't know what to do. What's wrong with me that I don't know what to do? How come I don't know how to deal with this? I'm supposed to know what to do. Why? What's wrong with me? Right. The fourth feeling, they're looking at the fear and the confusion and they feel bad. There's something wrong with me. And then they say, no, there's something wrong with them. With them, right. There's something wrong with the client. the
1: table's turn.
0: That's the client's fault. I hate this client. I don't like this client. This client's a, a stuck-up privileged businessman from Bell from Bellevue. I don't like him. Or actual fury at yeah. at the client. This this kind of thing. So, so then the therapist is looking back and, you know, you got, this is all happening within like a few seconds. I got fear. I got confusion. I don't know what to do. There's something wrong with me. No, No, there's there's something wrong with with them. them. Then they start feeling an urge to get out of this. Yeah. I got a lot of complicated feelings. I don't want to deal with this anymore. Right. This is too hard. I don't want to deal with this client or I don't even want to work as a therapist anymore. And then the final feeling is they're looking back on a lot of complicated feelings right now. And they say, I got to hide these feelings because if I reveal them, I'm a terrible therapist. Yeah. I'm even more inadequate. Yeah. Or I'm going to ruin yeah. this client's yeah. life if I
1: reveal yeah. all this, some some kind of urge to hide it all. Or I could make everything worse or every, you know, like right. the gun case I'm imagining. Like be, everybody be cool. This is a robbery. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> So, that is the essential general
0: structure right. that all 10 participants said, yep, you got it. So, that was you know, pretty gratifying to That's really cool. have happen.
1: Yeah. All right. I, by the way, I have a thought here. Um, so, when you got to the one about the hiding the feelings, right? something came to mind and it led me to another thought. So, the thing that came to mind was I had an experience a while back where more rookie hike guide and I – we're having a bit of a debate at hike work, hike guide work. And the more junior one is kind of starting to yell. And impartially stepping back, looking back, at this is several years ago and stuff. I'm like, that person was totally in the wrong in the beginning from the argument on the onset. And, and it was really their problem. And I was only trying to help. And, but it doesn't matter. In the moment, things start escalating. And at one point, this person says to me, and this is in an area full of hike guides. Right? So it's, it's all of our work co-workers there. And he says, well, maybe if you did your effing job, I, why am I effing? We are in a pocket. Maybe if you did your fucking job or something like, something very close to that, right? Now, because I was more experienced and whatever, I actually didn't forget. But I, but it felt like one of these difficult moments. It, and, I, and I feel like I went through all of these things. Cause like, it got to the escalation moment. I'm sure I felt some form of f- flight or flight, like fear, right? I, I, I can guarantee you I was confused cause I'm like, what? And then I, I know for a fact I, I felt somewhat inadequate. I'm like, what do I say? And then I was absolutely angry at the at the guy. I'm like, what a motherfucker, right? And then I was certainly thinking, I'm going to go to my manager. That's it. I'm never working with this individual again. And in the end, I didn't say anything in that moment. And I said, I have to take him to a conference room and explain that he can never talk to me like this again. But I can't do it in front of all these people. That's fascinating. I never thought about that. Which led me to this thought. Yeah. I wonder if you can generalize
0: this. That's interesting. I wonder if this is just like a difficult moment in general. That's interesting. I never had thought about that That's
1: because because I mean granted, there is a a, a fascinating like sub lens here because these are people that theoretically are trained in difficult moments. Like, from the outside looking in, right? Like, I'd say, like, don't you guys know what to do in these situations? But we started by saying that you don't. Right. Right? But So, that's one very interesting pivot. Yeah. But then you could look at the bigger pivot, which is, actually, what do normal people do in <laughs> difficult situations? Right. It's similar <laughs> to
0: the, quote-unquote, stages of, of mourning or, yeah. or, or loss. Yeah. That's what I was doing, my 12th, my 12th yeah. stage The five of stages grief. of grief.
1: No, they're 12th they, of strep cover. Yeah, Yeah,
0: they, they later applied those same experiences to not just the loss of a loved one mm-hmm. but to any sort of loss if I if I remember right the initial research was involved with with grief of for yeah. of regarding death but but now they apply those to if you lose a job or if you lose a limb or yeah. if you move and you lose your previous neighborhood this that you go through similar stages and I, I feel think- like
1: you have a book here it's like the stick six stages of of difficult moments or something. yeah right
0: yeah. god does that mean i have to write a book yep <laughs> so so what does all this mean uh what is all you know now that we have our six themes and our essential general structure found what does this mean well getting back to what i was talking about before worthy research adds new knowledge so what do you think do you think i added new knowledge to the field please say yes
1: I don't know. Yes, I think you did.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because remember, we already understood types and frequency, but we definitely didn't understand what this study found. Right, that's right. Right It this, sounds this, like you did, yeah, this study definitely adds depth that's right to that knowledge, which is what I intended to do. Um, this study also adds n- two new foci that had been previously mostly ignored in the literature regarding difficulties, and that would be feeling fear mm. and the feeling the urge to hide feelings, right. which is interesting because all ten of the participants described feeling fear yet in the previous research on difficulties, it's barely mentioned really. Right. And so that's interesting.
1: It's probably an interesting result of the different methodology.
0: Right. That's that's the theory, is that because no one had done a phenomenological research on the experience of the difficulty, it didn't highlight the fear. Because when you listen to these participants talk about it… They talk about some pretty, some pretty robust stories of fear, convincing stories of fear, Um, and the other is feeling. Privaty stories, yeah. The other is feeling an urge to hide feelings. Again, only barely mentioned, sort of in one of the previous studies, and this might again be because of the design of the study. And just to tell you, like a typical interview, what would happen was again, I would ask, please tell me your experience make you know I was really emphasizing your experience right. of one or more difficult clinical moments well the first 15 20 minutes they would be telling me about the details of the moment that doesn't pertain to their experience right they'd be giving me all this background and all and so I'd have one of the clarifying questions on the I, day
1: of the incident <laughs> that I would yeah
0: that I would often have to ask is well so what was your experience of that how how did you experience that and so these these themes that that they would eventually touch upon didn't usually come out until they talked about it for a long time and really got into it and really remembered what the moment was like for them. And so it's possible that in previous research, because they're just polling people and go, tell me about the sort of experiences you have. Right. And they're just doing a, a brief survey in that way that it didn't get to the deeper feelings and experiences right. that therapists experience.
1: I could totally see that.
0: Yeah. The the other thing is 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 Previously, I mentioned that, for instance, with inadequacy, only 8 out of 10 of the participants describing feeling inadequate, right? So but I had inadequacy in that essential general structure. So when I sent it to those two that did not mention inadequacy, why did they say, yes, you got it accurate? Why would they say that even though they didn't say it? Right. So, you know, there's a number of possibilities. They could have not read that part or they could have just been trying to be nice to me because they know that I want to finish the study. Right. Or they could have said, you know what, actually I guess I did feel a little inadequate. Right. And that's, that's what
1: I'm choosing to believe. Well, I feel like the types of people that you selected it's not like some you know undergraduate kid who like oh i'm still being bothered by this dude for this uh it, no these are professionals with yeah. lots of experience who talked about some very emotional situations yeah so my hypothesis would be that they would care enough to let you know if that if you had misrepresented their story in the end
0: right well let's hope so yeah and so if that's true then it lends itself to the hypothesis that when i discovered a theme that other people were describing and then reflected back to that person, that theme, they reflected further and said, you know what, actually, even though I didn't, I didn't initially uh, recall feeling inadequate, I I guess I actually did feel a little insecure about myself in that moment. Didn't you really mean insecure? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So we can say it's, it's, it's worthy research because it adds new knowledge and it, it Highlights two new foci that have previously not been paid attention to. But but really, the biggest thing that I think the findings can give us is it can solve the following problem, potentially. And that is, just going back to the beginning, difficulties are common. They're linked to negative effects for therapists and for clients. And yet therapists report they're insufficiently trained, Mm -hmm. they're unaware, and they're reluctant to seek help due to shame. So this is a problem. And the findings from this study, along with other studies in difficulty, if disseminated, could inform training and supervision efforts yeah. on how to prepare, how to respond, how to cope, the sort of things right. that you're interested. Maybe you could do a study on that.
1: Well, you know, it's, it's fascinating. As I was thinking about it, like, imagine that you're being trained as a manager or um, senior contributor on a team or whatever. And, you know, one of the things is, hey, just so you know, like, you may encounter, because you know how we started with, like, one of the things was, like, it's rare to encounter the difficult moments. Well, actually, in my professional experience, it is rare. I, th- those moments haven't happened to me tons of times. But when they happen, they're a big deal. They're awful. They're awful. Yeah. And so, like, that little bit of training, even just to show me a graphic with, like, you might go through these stages, right? The 12 stages. of the, You might go through these six stages and... It's not, you're not a weird person for going through these stages. Right. You're actually normal.
0: <laughs> and seasoned psychotherapists right. describe right. these feelings, not not exactly. novices. These are seasoned people exactly. in their 60s, been working for 30 plus years. That's right. So it's not only normal, it's like totally expected. It's That's like, right. it's the rule. It's not the exception. Now, so, I do
1: have a question for you though. Yeah. What, what do you, did you end up, even though that wasn't your goal and you didn't ask about it, What's that final step that, that is maybe useful? Is it the, the don't make it worse, like, like yeah. don't stir the pot?
0: Right. So I, I never asked yeah. for that clarification, but a number of people offered that they would go to their consult groups with this. Interesting. Experienced therapists know the importance of having a good, uh, tight-knit consult group. So this is a group of like five or six therapists and they meet once every month or once every couple weeks and they, they're, they're best friends in some ways. They're not just colleagues and they trust each other and they know that they can talk about having contracted cancer, for instance, and they're having a hard time motivating themselves to do therapy or they had a difficult moment and they really just need some support around that. So Novice therapists, I find, do not cultivate these kinds of relationships very often, but in my experience, seasoned therapists do. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them talked about that. One of them even said, and in the moment, as I was feeling all these feelings, I suddenly had relief because I knew tomorrow I was meeting with my consult group and Ah. and I knew I was going to... T- tell them about it. So there was a small sub theme among two or three ah. participants in- that was the urge to consult. <laughs>
1: so, this is probably why the Avengers and the JLA got formed, right? So that, you know, Hulk and Thor when they're having a have a difficult moment with some aliens a difficult heroic moment oh I'm so angry and I'm confused and I feel all these things but you know what tomorrow we have breakfast with the Avengers and I know that I can talk to them about it exactly <laughs> so other things
0: that if we disseminate the findings that might happen are we might increase general awareness in the field because remember therapists right. are generally unaware and, and we need to increase awareness and it would lead to normalizing reducing shame increasing the prevalence of consultation among therapists.
1: Can you role play a bit in... Can you imagine some role-playing?
0: Right. So we might train yeah. uh, and by role-playing. Uh, we might increase disclosure to supervisors, because remember, 97% of supervisees right. withhold important information from their supervisors. Right. So if we disseminate the findings from the study, we might reduce that that, That's right. that that percentage. Another thing that might happen is that we might increase disclosure by supervisors to supervisees, because according to research, when supervisors do that, it actually helps the the supervisee to be more honest with their supervisor. It deepens the, ther- the supervisor relationship. Other things that might happen if we disseminate the findings is re- might reduce the negative, the negative effects on therapists because they feel normal and right. they might actually reach out for help instead of stuffing it. It might ultimately improve client outcomes because when you have healthier therapists, you have healthier clients. So all of this leads to the possibility of me developing a training module in which it might uh, be incorporated into graduate training programs and or continuing education. So that's my next step. That's great. Uh, Any any thoughts before I uh, conclude?
1: Yeah, I'd like to volunteer to be the role player. So anytime you're doing the class, I'll come in. I'll be the distressing Patient. Oh no, I thought you might role play like confusion. <laughs> I see. Okay. So as you go through each stage, I'm like, I'm so afraid. No, you have to do
0: like an 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 interpretive dance. An interpretive
1: dance. Yeah.
0: In black and white. Yeah. And with A full one of those full, full like body. Spandex, <laughs> spandex suits. Confusion and you wave your and arms. And I am just around. waving. Around. And then anger you're like punching.
1: <laughs> Don't but, tell me how to do my job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to inspire you. So When I was going through the analysis phase and the interview phase of this study, to remain as open to what the participants were telling me as possible, I tried not to think about my own experience of difficult clinical moments, because I didn't want that to bias me as I asked, you know, because if I had fear, I didn't want to say, did you feel fear? <laughs> I also didn't want to look for that, so right. to speak, as I was analyzing the transcripts. So I, I actively did not think about my own difficult moments in my past. But once the analysis phase was over, I was free to think about my difficult clinical moments. And one popped in the mind immediately. Oh, It happened a number of years ago, but I can remember it like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I'll describe it in general terms, you know, because I won't reveal the client's identity. But what happened was this this client was particularly difficult to work with. Most mm-hmm. most clients are easy to work with, you know, 99% mm-hmm. are easy to work with. But occasionally you come across a person that is is very... It's very, in general, difficult to work with, and but you know I'm a therapist and I've and I've worked with people like this before, and and usually they're difficult because they've been traumatized or they've been wronged in some way, and they have trouble they have trouble trusting, and so I really enjoy working with people like this because I feel like I can really help them. Right. So one day she comes into the office. And she starts to berate me for being a horrible therapist. And I was experienced enough to know what to do with this difficult moment. And so I responded by saying, well, you know, I'm sorry. That Tell me more. What, how have I let you down? How have I disappointed you? What could I do to improve the therapy for you? I'm, I'm really sorry that, 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 I, that I did that. Sometimes I make mistakes. And so I, I, I was doing all the right things, I thought. But as time wore on in the session... She slowly started getting under my skin, mm. and I started to feel my heart racing. <gasps> oh, and I, I started to sweat. Yes, and I I started to feel an urge to run out of the room. Oh, and I started Sounds to familiar. I started to get confused, mm-hmm. and I started to the things she was saying were attacks on my ability mm-hmm. as a therapist and I started believing what she was saying because there was a kernel of truth to what ah, she to so what she inadequacy. was saying. And then I started judging her and and mm-hmm. saying she's a mean person and and she's a horrible person. What kind of person treats other people like this? Right. And I thought to myself, I don't want to work with this person anymore.
1: And you're keeping a composure the whole time. So well, it's all under the surface up to this point.
0: Well, as as the moment progressed, I was handling my feelings, but I'm 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 feeling my adrenaline yeah. increase, my anxiety is is increasing. I'm starting to I'm starting to lose it. Yeah. And it was a hot summer day and so I, you know, I just remember it was just like very hot and humid and sweaty. Oh. And so I was starting to lose the ability to think straight, like physiologically, and so I only had a couple of options. I I, I actually had considered running out of my own office, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but but instead, <laughs> but instead, I and this was not an intellectual time no, of for me. That. You know what I mean? I I, I, I couldn't think straight, so I just put my head in my hands and I bent over. And I was looking down at the ground, and all I could say was, "Could you please be quiet because I can't think straight right now?" And she did. She, 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 she I think at that point she realized that something was happening right. for me. Right. And it's was
1: her difficult moment started right then. <laughs> yeah.
0: And she remained quiet. Uh-huh. Well, long story short, the session recovered, and the relationship uh-huh. recovered, and you know things progressed well. Oh,
1: at, well, that's great. After
0: that, but that's not the point. The yeah. point is, is. In that moment, yeah. I had uh, a lot of difficult feelings. Yeah. And after that moment years ago, I didn't talk about that moment with other therapists. Right. I, may, I might have told one person, but I don't even think she was a therapist. I think she was just a friend that right. worked in social work. But I was not proud mm-hmm. of that moment. I was not proud of my feelings. I wasn't proud of my anxiety. Right. I, I was ashamed of the fact that I crumbled under under the pressure. Right. And I thought, a better therapist, that wouldn't have happened.
1: Oh, man.
0: And after sitting with the interviewees in this study and really reading the transcripts and getting into it and then analyzing it and then confirming the findings and everything, I realized I had a totally typical, yeah. right-down-the-middle experience of a difficult clinical moment. Yeah. I couldn't have been more normal. Yeah. I, ex- I mean, if this happened every day, yeah. then I'd, you know, that's yeah. a little abnormal. But this happened, you know, once of every right. five or six years. <laughs> can you imagine if in every, every day. session you
1: put your head down in your hands, you're like, can you please be quiet so I can think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, then you're in a
0: different situation. So, yeah, so this happens, you know, once every five or six years or something that, for me. That's interesting. And, and so so it's very, and you know, and I've subsequently had moments where clients were presenting difficulty. Right. And, and I didn't have that reaction for whatever reason. And so I realized after the, you know, really sitting with the findings of the study that it was a normal reaction and I shouldn't feel ashamed at all. And so that felt good. It it, it felt liberating. It it feels so good, I feel I can put this on the internet and tell it to everyone and say, I'm normal. That's right. And no one can tell me I'm not because I've done the research. Wow. The other thing that it did to me was, again, reading the literature, I had it in my head that if I were to share this Difficult clinical moment and my experience of it to my students and my supervisees that that might have a positive effect on the relationship and on on the trainee and Previous to this study. I would not have described right. it in that way usually at least mm-hmm. I, I You know, I, it, I was probably reluctant to do so after this when I would have supervisees and students bring up issues that were related to this sort of thing, I would say, well, you know what happened to me? Mm. I had this moment where I was holding it together, but this client kept berating me and it was really difficult for me to handle. And I was kind of in a bad mood that day and I might've had low blood sugar. I don't know. And I lost it and I was sweating and I couldn't think straight. And I mean, I was having kind of like an anxiety attack just just from what the client was saying to me. And I felt inadequate and I felt ashamed and I... I was very angry at this client. Yeah, and previous to the study, I would have thought that you know the trainee would say, "Oh, that happened to you." Well, you must be a terrible therapist. I don't. <laughs> I don't want. I don't you, want to listen to you. I don't want you to teach me <laughs> anything because obviously you're incompetent. <laughs> and but what happened was the opposite. The the supervisees would often s- soften a little bit and say, "Wow, yeah, that's a, that." that's what happened to me. And they right. felt able to say, yeah, wow, you I didn't know that happened to you. I, I thought I was the only one. Because when you're a novice, it happens all the time, honestly. It happens frequently. Oh, when, I can imagine. When yeah. you're first starting out, yeah. And the other thing it did, I think, is it deepens the supervisor relationship. It makes it so that it they have more trust in me. They feel safer to talk about things. And the other thing it does is it allows them to disclose those difficult moments to me so that we can talk about it. Previous to me disclosing that, they might have felt they were the only one. And if they share it with me, I'm going to fire them and kick them out of the program or something. Right. So these are the sort of transformations that I would like to see happen propagate throughout our field. These are the sort of of beneficial, positive effects that I would like to see happen as a result of disseminating the findings from this study.
1: So maybe we could ask for help from all the listeners that are patients of therapy. The next time you have therapy create a difficult moment for your therapist so they can practice these six steps. Is that is that what we should do? Yeah. <laughs> so now we have... How would you do it? It would just be
0: like you'd walk in and just start berating your therapist. Yes.
1: Or... I heard on a podcast that I'm supposed to tell you, you suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you having a panic attack yet?
0: <laughs> I don't see any
1: sweat. We'll see on the news like waves of distressed uh angry, I'm sorry, fearful, confused, angry like wandering therapist. around hiding their feelings, yeah, hiding their feelings, <laughs> threatening to quit the profession yeah. all around the country. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I just, in my head, I see behind the newscasters a bunch of, you know, middle-aged men and women with sweaters with patches on the on the sleeves, oh, yeah. and they're all walking around obviously distressed, distressed. And, saying, and saying, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm, uh, what are you talking about? I'm fine.
1: <laughs> I'm, a, I'm competent. Oh, man. That's...
0: So that is my phenomenological study titled Seasoned Psychotherapist's Experience of Difficult Clinical Moments. Woo! You can find it online If you look hard enough
1: <laughs> That was really good I, I think that was an interesting and worthwhile choice And as I said, I think it applies broader Than just your field And it's interesting
0: Yeah, that is interesting yeah. That'd be another study, I guess yeah. Difficult moments at work Difficult professional moments Yeah, It reminds me of Carl Rogers Developed client-centered therapy mm-hmm. But then he wanted to extend it Beyond therapy, and he called it person-centered, because he wanted it not only to be applied to clients. Interesting. So maybe, maybe you're right.
1: Well, it's one of those things where, like, anyone that has to work with people, which is most of us, at some point they will encounter a difficult situation. So if you have anything you'd like to
0: say about this, please email us at contact at psychology in dot com or go to psychology in dot com and fill out the contact us form and contact us. You can also find an archive of our episodes on psychology in dot com. You can find photographs of me and Umberto and Wait, we're online. We're we're on the Internet. Oh, right. yeah. Why? I didn't know that. Why? What, what are you
1: worried about? Uh, Well, I didn't know people. I don't want people looking at me and hearing me and stuff.
0: Yeah, well, they are. Ow! (laughs) Well,
1: that does it for another episode
0: of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us. And don't be ashamed of your feelings during a difficult clinical moment. And take care of yourself because you deserve it.
1: Isn't that a song? Don't be ashamed of your feelings! It's by the Soup Dragons. Because I'm ashamed to do what What I I want. want. In a typical moment. moment. <laughs> <laughs>